You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Welcome back, Libby. Glad to be here again. So let's dive into part two of this anatomy mini-series on some of the most common diagnoses that yoga teachers are going to encounter in their classes. Here's a question from one of the students inside Anatomy Bites. Okay, here's what she said. I'm still stuck on the idea that in my older population, there may be some who don't know yet whether they have osteoporosis in their spine. What might be lost in teaching or cueing for a more neutral spine just across the board? And what particular benefits come from spinal flexion that would be lost by just eliminating it? (laughs) So basically, the student is saying, because I don't know if people have osteoporosis in their spine and because they may not know, shouldn't I just throw spinal flexion out the window altogether? That's basically her question. And here's a related question. If someone has known osteoporosis in some other part of their body, but not specifically in their spine, would avoiding forward folding or spinal flexion be advised as a precaution? Okay, good questions and good jumping off points, I think, for a discussion that will be really useful. I know that we all have some sense of what osteoporosis is, but give us the down low of what yoga teachers really need to know about this diagnosis. All right. Osteoporosis is simply a case where bones become more brittle. They become less mineral dense and therefore more prone to fracture. And the reason that happens is, well, the largest population, I should say, that's at the most risk for developing osteoporosis is postmenopausal women because uh, of the changes in hormones. And there are a couple of things that help bones stay mineral dense. One of those things is hormonal balance, homeostasis, which is complicated. But when uh, a female goes through menopause, they have this big drop in estrogen, and that triggers a whole series of events that leads to leaching of minerals out of the bones. And so that's why, you know, we we hear a lot of talk in the postmenopausal arena about the importance of doing things for osteoporosis, like weight bearing and hormone replacement therapy and all the different things, different ways people address it. Now, there are other people who certainly have osteoporosis also that aren't in that demographic. Anyone of any age with any kind of body could have it for a whole number of reasons. You know, in some cases, exposure to long-term medications can predispose them to developing it. Some cancer treatments or corticosteroid medications, and even with history of like an eating disorder, things like that. So a lot of different cases where someone might have osteoporosis. So what do you think about this idea of avoiding spinal flexion? So I'm like really almost never a fan of across the board, avoiding a certain movement, unless there's a good reason to. And it turns out that having osteoporosis in one's spine is a good reason to. But just because we're worried someone might have osteoporosis in their spine is not a good enough reason 
to eliminate spinal flexion, in my view. It is a good reason to inquire with those students, especially if it's an older population that's going to be more likely to have osteoporosis. You know, I would want to ask those students, hey, have you had a bone density scan? Right. And what did you find out about it? That plants a seed that hmm, maybe it's time to start looking at that. Let's get a baseline. I would like to know that because that may have some impact. Well, likely will have some impact on how I practice yoga moving forward. Because the, the highest risk thing we do in yoga for people with osteoporosis in their spine is forward flexion of the spine. And we do it all day long in yoga practice. You know, it's very hard to avoid spinal flexion in a lot of forms of practice. Well, let me ask you this, though, Libby. Is it possible to avoid spinal flexion in our everyday lives completely? Probably not. Yeah, probably not. But when we learn about it, say at yoga, we can apply those same sort of principles and precautions in daily life and ideally reduce our risk of spinal compression fracture. That's the risk, spinal compression fracture. It is probably impossible, right, to eliminate spinal flexion from life. However, I have had so many patients in the past who sustained a spinal compression fracture doing their laundry or doing whatever activity of daily living, just normal stuff. And no one ever told them that spinal flexion was a risk for a compression fracture. And that's weird to me, but it's very common. It's a common thing I hear for people who have been diagnosed with osteoporosis in their spine, somehow or another, they never get the memo that, hey, spinal flexion increases your risk for compression fracture of your spine. And so many, many cases, I'm the first person that ever told them that. And they're like, thank you so much. I had no idea. Now I can modify and, and certainly I can mitigate this risk. Am I going to eliminate it altogether? No, I'm not. That's not practical, right? But I can limit it as best I can. And from my perspective, for the yoga teacher, what I really don't want to happen is for a student to break their back in yoga class. And then it's like, oh, the student, now we've contributed to the idea that yoga is like bad for this population. And that is not true at all. But we do need to be mindful about this risk because I'd much rather, you know, someone go to their doctor and not report that they got hurt at yoga. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Darn, they were going to have that compression fracture that day anyway, right? It happened to happen at yoga practice. But then we get this, now the doctor maybe has a negative association with yoga as well. And certainly they're not going to suggest their patients go to yoga because they had that one patient who broke her back at yoga, right? And that whole thing. So it's more about protecting the teacher and the idea of yoga in general than about protecting the student. I want the student to keep coming to yoga because there's some benefits even to their bone density that, that may be gained at yoga. And I want them to learn about the risk of spinal flexion so that they can mitigate their risk out their daily life. But if they're going to break a bone, but if it's going to happen, let's at least not have it happen at yoga. Because we can, you know, in yoga, our movements are are not willy-nilly. Like we're focused on mindfully doing them. So we have a lot of control over our movement in yoga, much more so than, say, running around chasing after a grandchild or something like that. The problem with osteoporosis of the spine is that there isn't 
a certain place within the range of motion where we're going to get some signal that we should stop. The signal is going to be a fracture and we won't get the signal before then. It's because osteoporosis isn't a painful condition. It's not like, oh, my bones hurt because they're brittle. That's not the case, you know? And so a lot of people don't ever know they even have osteoporosis until they sustain a fracture. And especially in a case where it's like, huh, a normal healthy bone should not have fractured during that activity. Why don't we take a look at your bone density? Oh, look, it turns out you have osteoporosis. That's often how it goes. And so that's why, you know, as we get older, we need to start getting that checked out so that we can follow our bone density levels. Because once we have osteoporosis in the spine in particular, at that point, I would not, I would just not do spinal flexion. It isn't worth the risk, but I certainly would do some other things. So let's talk about how we can prevent or mitigate the risks of osteoporosis. Do you mean like once someone has osteoporosis or how do we prevent getting it? Yeah, the second one. If we don't have it, we may have some in our family or we may just live in an estrogen dominant body. How do we think about this risk, this possibility without getting like really limited before there's a need to be limited? Yeah. So, so first I would say there's no need to limit spinal flexion in any way unless you have osteoporosis in your spine. Okay, so to answer the student's question, what if I have osteoporosis in my hip, but not my spine? Spinal flexion's fine. No problem. No problem. Okay, it won't, like avoiding spinal flexion isn't going to help you prevent getting osteoporosis in your spine. In fact, loading the spine in all the ways you can is good. It will stimulate positive adaptations in the bone. So we want that because the other, so I mentioned hormonal balance over here as one big mechanism of maintaining bone density. The other big mechanism is mechanical stress. The bones have to be stressed mechanically so that they will be stimulated to suck in the minerals rather than leaching them out. It's sort of like this little seesaw, but we hear about the importance of weight bearing all the time. That is just compressive stress on bones, getting in gravity, bloating the bones with compression. It's good for them. And so similarly, loading the anterior vertebral bodies that are not osteoporotic is good for them. It's not a risk until it's a risk, basically. But short of rewinding the tape and going away back to childhood and starting to run and jump a whole lot more, because that's ideally the best way to prevent osteoporosis, is rewind, go way back, and start pounding and jumping and running and like really stressing the bones as kids. That is when our bone density gets really, the foundation gets set up. Not to say we can't influence it at any age because plenty of people do, okay? It's just harder as we get older. So what I would do, what I do do, (laughs) a big reason I do weight training is for my bones, is for prevention of osteoporosis because that's the A number one thing I would recommend and do recommend to almost all humans, especially humans living in a female body, is get under some weight and stimulate those bones to suck in the minerals again and become stronger. And then hopefully out of the osteoporosis arena and start improving our bone density. And then we go like, go enjoy spinal flexion again. So we can 
turn it around. And the best way to do that is through resistance exercise. Now, can body weight exercise also influence bone density? Yes, it can. In fact, there's some interesting research on a yoga program to um, improve bone density. But my first choice will always be resistance training because it's about the resistance. That's what stimulates the bones. And returning to the relationship between these two questions, the one about should I assume that everybody has it because I'm working with people in this specific age range to should I assume that if somebody has it somewhere else that they're more at risk in their spine? I'm guessing that the person who has osteoporosis in their hip but not their spine is much more likely to know that than someone who hasn't had any imaging done. Am I am I on the right track here that if you know you have osteoporosis in your hip, your doctor's probably looked in your spine too? Yes. Yep. So typically when someone gets a DEXA scan, which is this bone density scan, they'll have several different areas evaluated. And typically it's the lumbar spine and the hip, the femur, and some perhaps somewhere else. But those are the two places that I'm most interested in. And yes, if someone knows they have osteoporosis, they should know where they have it. And sometimes they may just need to go call their doctor again, call the office and find out the details of that report, right? They may have just been told you have osteoporosis. They may not have been given the detail they need to really pursue their yoga practice without, you know, concern or modification. Okay. So I will say if someone's predominantly teaching older female people uh, who are postmenopausal, I'm going to assume some of them have osteoporosis and I'm certainly going to encourage them to investigate that. That's what, that's the main thing. I would do some education about this. If they don't already have it on the radio, a radar, I like for them to find out so that we know if we need to be making this precaution. You know, that's a, that's a group I probably wouldn't do a lot of spinal flexion with out of precaution, but like for the regular population, you know, other ages of people, it's not, a, I'm not going to be concerned with it at all. Not at all. <clears throat> Unless there's some other injury that someone has, right? That's person specific that makes us uh, avoid spinal flexion. But when it comes to osteoporosis, there's certainly a higher risk in that demographic that I'm going to be aware of. And it will likely change how much bioflexion I do with that group. That's, that's probably going to happen. But I mostly want them to find out so that we can let go of that precaution if possible. Right. And if you teach a class with drop-ins every week, that might not be possible. So in an ideal world, we would not avoid spinal flexion with people who don't have an osteoporosis diagnosis and living in a less than ideal world we would definitely want to do education if we work with that population and then limit the amount of spinal flexion that we introduce into those classes based on our personal risk tolerance right because you know, listening to this episode, the original person who asked this question, this is clearly someone who has a lower risk tolerance. Otherwise, they wouldn't be asking this question. Yeah. Yes. But I have a low risk tolerance and I also have a higher level of liability because I really am supposed to know better. Right. So I always err on the side of more extreme caution than 
I know others would. And that's fine. I'm, I'm happy to be in that category of low risk tolerance. I would rather know for sure, because I also, I don't mind modifying my plan and I don't mind just kind of going back to basics and that that's a happy place for me. I know for a lot of people, especially newer teachers, it is really hard to modify your class plan at the last minute. That's, that's like a mind blowing moment. And it's, it's really hard until you get more practice with that. This is one of the very, very few places where I think caution is warranted. It really is one of, you know, there's this and there's hip replacement, recent hip replacement. Those are pretty much the only two things that make me eh, a little, a little sweaty, you know, when a student has those conditions. And everything else, it doesn't bother me so much. But the reason being, you know, a spinal compression fracture, if we look at that in the grand scheme of all possible injuries, it sucks. Nobody wants that. But is it the end of the world? No, it's going to heal. Okay. It's going to heal and it's going to be okay. It's going to be uncomfortable. But the real issue here is that once someone has one compression fracture in their spine, they are now much more likely to have a second one and a third one. And now the whole spine kind of starts collapsing. And that gets us into a bigger problem area. And so it can kind of be like this domino effect. I think this is an area that is warranted that we bring mindfulness to this if we were dealing with older females, for sure. What percentage of the older female population has osteoporosis? Mm, That is a great question. And one of the reasons that the prevalence may be tricky to pin down is that so many people don't know they have it until they have a pathological fracture. Pathological fracture just being a fracture that they should not have sustained, you know, given their activity that they were doing. So I don't know. Uh, let's see. So based on a very, very quick uh, surge here, which I'm not going to put a lot of weight on, I'm seeing between 20 and 30% of the older female population. And this is a very general number here. And also a very general term because it's that over 80, over 70, over 60. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I would, I'm going to guess, and I'm seeing this on a few of these, it's going to be 65 and older, but some of these studies are going to have looked at uh, women 50 or 55 and older and some are going to be higher in age. So it's a very rough estimate. This is a really tough conundrum for yoga teachers who teach primarily older females because you're talking about limiting a movement that could benefit 75%-ish of your class and be dangerous for 25%-ish. That's really tough because generally we're going to err on the side of caution, right? We don't want to hurt people more than we're not wanting to, I don't know, hold back benefit. Yeah. But... At the same time, there's this greater percentage that would benefit. So tough. Well, it is tough. It is. We could also think about ways of like, quote unquote, forward folding that are more or less risky, that load the anterior vertebral bodies more or less, right? And a seated forward fold, I'm going to load the anterior bodies of the vertebrae much more heavily than a supine forward fold, for example. So when we we have to look at where's gravity and where are we in relationship to gravity and can we change our relationship with gravity so that our risk is lowered? 
there's also, you know, a seated forward bend is like our spine is all that can move. Basically, we don't have a lot of mobility available to our hips and our pelvis in that situation because they're stuck to the ground. So that's just an example of a, a more risky version of forward fold. It's also harder to do a seated forward fold without rounding your spine because now we're coming up against the limits of our hamstring length. And so for most normal humans, we're getting to 90 degrees, which is Don Domsa, and we're not getting any farther. So it doesn't really look like much of a forward fold, you know, if we're trying to stay out of spinal flexion. But lying down on your back, you've got your spine pre-stabilized against the floor. And so we're hugging the knees, big toe pose, those types of forward folds are less risky in that position. So would you avoid cat-cow for an older female population? I'd probably modify it. Yeah. And the way that I modify cat-cow is I like to go from child's pose to cow pose, back to child's pose, back to cow pose. So that because the child's pose, while still spinal flexion, is less spinal flexion than the cat. And so it's it kind of it turns it down, turns the risk down. Now, some people's child's pose has them very flexed in their spine and, and some other people aren't as flexed in their spine, depending on their hip mobility um, and, and their flexibility. So it really is about, it's not so much about the posture, it's about the position of the spine in that posture and different bodies are going to show up differently that way. But I really like that child's pose to the cow back and forth. I like that movement anyway. So that's usually my go-to for modification of cat-cow. And I had a student class once who said her mother just sustained a spinal compression fracture doing cat and cow. You know, it's, it's cat cow isn't a scary posture. It's not something we usually associate with high risk at all. But boom, there it was, you know. So your classes, when you were teaching back care classes, I'm guessing that at least more than half of the population was older females in that class. Probably, yeah. And were you completely avoiding all spinal flexion in that class? No, but I often will throw in a verbal cue about it. So I'll do cat and cow. I'll do, um, you know, child's pose, a standing forward fold if I come to standing. I certainly won't avoid spinal flexion completely. But when I'm doing the cat and cow, I will say, if you have osteoporosis in your spine, do this modification instead. You can either exhale you know, to neutral tabletop or try exhaling back to child's pose to limit the spinal flexion. And a lot of people after class would say, hey, I'd never heard of that. What's that about? And I'll say, well, it's about your risk for a compression fracture on spinal flexion. And a lot, and that plants a seed for a lot of people to try to go learn more about their body, which I think is positive. So I really like that approach of putting the decision-making back on the student and inviting them to decide for themselves. And at the same time, I think there's a bit of a slippery slope there that we don't want to be naming every possible injury that might have a contraindication because then you're just basically talking about potential injury the whole class. And that is not really mentally going to lead people where we want them to go, like what the whole point of yoga is. So I'm curious, is osteoporosis kind of a special case where it's worth talking about the risk, but you wouldn't want to extrapolate that and start like 
doing that throughout your whole class for all different diagnoses. Yes, it is the only case that I do that. I don't talk about any other diagnosis, probably never mentioned another one in class, but I almost always mention that one if we're doing spinal flexion. If we start sort of spinning out on all the possible contraindications, there aren't many. There are so few. This is really one of few. Now, if you're in a a much more frail, medically compromised population, that's a different story. But in that case, you're probably in chairs or in wheelchairs and your group's going to self-select through what movements are available. In most cases, for most conditions people have commonly out there in the world, we modify for comfort. That's usually the case. And we listen to the body. This is a special case. It really is. Well, thank you for sharing in so much depth about this unusual condition where there aren't a lot of warning signs and some different possibilities for how we can approach it. Before we wrap up, what is the third and final topic of this mini-series going to be about? We're going to talk about hips. We're going to talk specifically about the hip labrum and labral tears. And what if someone has one? How would we know? How would they know? What should we do about it? Awesome. And if listeners want to find out more about learning from you and joining your membership, Anatomy Bites, where should they go? They should go to anatomybites.com and come join the fun. Sweet. All right. Well, I'll see you again next episode. All right. See you then.